You are listening to The Investor Way with Sam Ball and Jonathan McEwen. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and follow us on Twitter at TIWTweets. Hello, welcome to The Investor Way with me, Sam Ball. I'm joined today by our special guest, Imagineinvests, who you can follow on Twitter at Imagineinvests. Imagineinvests is a retail investor who lives and works in London. He started investing in index funds in 2016 before starting his own active portfolio in 2020. His goal is to beat the market over an initial five-year period and have fun learning, with his benchmark being the S&P 500. He also wants to connect with like-minded people and grow along the way. How did you first become interested in investing? And can you briefly talk us through your investing career to date? Yeah, sure. So I was fairly aware of investing from a youngish age from my dad. He invested in property as far as I was aware. As I was growing up, I sort of remember him going to various properties that he, he'd owned and rented out, helping out sort of clear them out and refurnish them, et cetera, et cetera. But I never really took an interest in that. It felt quite hands-on. Uh, when I then finished university, it was like I didn't really want to do property investing. I was just finding my fee. I was not earning very much money being a recent graduate. And then about in 2016, as two years into the workforce, I'd finally started to get some reasonable disposable income. I'd started saving money into a cash ISA, which is a tax-free account here in the UK. And, and I'm sure you're aware, basically, the interest rates on that are nothing. And I thought, right, OK, I need to now start thinking about growing my money or, or having a bit, bit of a better interest rate essentially on my money. So I spoke to my dad and I said, you know, what, what do you think I should do? He suggested I just put money into index funds. So that's what I did in 2016. I just went through the bank I was with. They had some basic off the shelf index funds. And actually at the same time, he took this opportunity to hand over his stock portfolio, which I previously didn't know existed. Now, this wasn't actually some sort of grand bravado handing over of a huge portfolio with fantastic stocks picked from the early 90s that were great and had gone you know, 10, 20 X times. They were essentially the dregs of the dot-com bubble bursting and the financial crisis. So he had invested in the early 90s and noughties into various different dot-com bubbles. He probably if he was investing today, would be doing things like SPACs and things like that. But essentially, the portfolio I was, I was handed was all the leftovers of that. So some of those stocks were down 80, 90 percent. He just kept them because he hoped that one day they would get back to wherever he paid. So I was given those. They also had some old school utility companies. So you talked about in your interview with Philosopher Invest how he got started. And he mentioned he got on um, with the British Gas and British Telecom privatization. Similarly here, there were some of those in there. So he, he sort of handed that over to me. So I became vaguely interested in individual companies. But to be honest, I didn't really know what I was doing. So what I did was I just started putting a little bit of money into some individual companies that were household names, because to me, that was basically all I knew. So I started off with things like Ted Baker, WH Smith, British Gas, or Centric, as it was known. But to be honest, I didn't have the right mindset when I was investing. And we'll come on to that later. And I sold quite a few of them for a quick profit. I hope you sold Ted Baker and Centrica based on what they've done since. I did. I I sold Ted Baker for a small profit, which is probably the only time I've done that where I've made a profit. All the rest were at losses. And actually, again, we'll talk about it later. I bought Tesla and sold it quite quickly for a small profit as well. Essentially, I then spent the next four years just observing, learning, reading and plucking up the courage to take the dive into individual stock picking. 
And last year, 2020, we all know what happened, pandemic. I had a lot more time on my hands. I wasn't commuting. So I started reading even more, uh, listening to podcasts and took the plunge, took out a couple of subscriptions of stock picking services and then started seriously picking stocks. Essentially, the other thing I did was I looked at my sort of trajectory of the next 20, 30 years. Uh, I don't know if you've done this where you just, you know, take a spreadsheet, you put in some numbers and you and you look at compounding interest and you see what happens when you get even plus one, plus two, plus three on the historic average of eight to 10 percent. And it's crazy, particularly those later years. And so I looked at that and I thought, actually, even if I get one extra percent over a 20 year period, that's massive. If I beat the market by one percent, that's massive. So I took the plunge. I decided, look, I'll try this for five years. That's a reasonable amount of time to invest and see if I if I'm any good at this, if I enjoy it, if I'm still interested in it. And if I am, we'll take it from there. Okay. So when your dad handed over his portfolio to you, what happened in that interim period then between 2016 when it was handed over or whenever it was, and say 2020 when you actually started buying individual stocks? Was it all just, did you move it all to index funds or? So actually I just left it as it was. It he obviously handed it over to me. As I said, it was a fairly modest amount of money. It didn't feel like it was worth it selling it, paying all the fees. It was in, with very old brokers and things like that. They were all over the place to consolidate. So I actually took took a year or so to consolidate all of them. And they were all on paper, the share certificates. So you had to cash them in and get them digitized. So to be honest, I didn't do much with them. I didn't really see the value in selling them and, and reallocating the capital, uh, mainly because, again, I didn't know what I wanted to reallocate that in. I had my own money that I was going to start investing in anyway. So I thought, let me just do that first. Over the subsequent three years, I've sold some of those down and I've put them into index funds. So they still remain there in index funds. And the rest I then just, as I said, have just left. So there's a couple of things left like BT. There's some Lloyd's shares in there. I mean, they're all fine. They're, they're all down quite a bit, but they pay a little bit of dividend every now and then. Eventually, I'll get around to selling them. But at the moment, it's not really a big issue. So what index funds did you go for? So mainly they are the Vanguard index funds. I went for the Vanguard Total Index, so the global tracker. And I did a little bit of emerging markets as well. So to add add a bit of diversification or particularly add a bit, add a bit more risk, because I know that I'm looking at a 20 year time horizon. So I can afford to take the risk in something like emerging markets. And then with your own portfolio, was was that roughly the same then until you started buying individual stocks a year ago? Exactly. So my my portfolio sort of uh, middle of April, May last year was 100% in index funds. There were 80% in global equity fund, 20% in a emerging markets fund, or probably 15%. And then 5% was just left a bit in cash there as I was just dripping that in. Do you think there's anything you've learned from managing your dad's portfolio that you might not have learned or might not have learned as quickly just doing your own i think so i think i think the biggest thing i learned from him was not to rush into things i think he he got rightly caught up in some of the hype in the late 90s with the dot-com bubble arguably you know many people have been comparing some of what's happened in the last year to that i did learn that but I, again i still made those same mistakes i'm sure we'll talk about this <laughs> this later when we talk about mistakes so I, I learned a bit of that i learned also that he was quite fixated on the price of the share so when, when i when i talked to him about it and he said oh, what's the price now and i'd say this is what the price is is that oh well you know that's quite cheap and obviously sometimes the price isn't actually reflected in 
what the business is value that's obviously the market cap he wasn't really massively into his uh understanding of what you know market cap was market cap is it was very much a here's a stock at 1p it could go up to 5p so I'll, I'll try it again obviously he had some big hitters like their british te- telecom british gas the other thing actually i learned from him was he was quite big on his dividend stock so he was quite he, he liked the idea of getting paid sort of whatever quarterly six monthly from your stock now i've obviously taken a slightly different approach which we can talk about but that's something i learned as well that actually there there is a there is a way to do investing in very different ways the other thing actually i learned was he he'd essentially got burned out of the market in the early 2000s and he decided right i'm i'm no longer investing in stocks and i'm going to go into property which has it served him very well and he's essentially been able to semi retire at you know mid mid to early 50s which i'm sure many people would would love to do so i think i learned the fact that there there are different ways to do this you don't have to all be in one you don't have to be in another you don't all have to try and get 8 9 10 11% compound annual growth in the stock market you can try property you can try a mix of both there are different ways of doing things but they all take time so i think that's the other thing i learned from when he handed his portfolio over to me i thought oh you know he, he's messed this up but then i thought actually no he's 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 got great gig right now so he's not messed it up he's just taken a different path how did you then go about building up your portfolio at the beginning and by the beginning it's probably best to define that as 2020 when you actually started doing it yourself with individual stocks yeah sure so yeah i i sort of look at mid 2020 as my sort of starting point of my active investing career so i i still despite having sort of almost four years of experience and knowledge and learning i was still quite cautious and nervous about individual stock picking because i'd not done it successfully before so i did go for some of the bigger names and again you can see that in my portfolio with apple Netflix being quite high. So I went for those fang stocks. I went for the big ones because I wanted to provide myself with a bit of ballast. I wanted to sort of open my portfolio and see recognizable brand names of things I knew, things I used, things I did that weren't going to move hugely over a short period of time. You know, the volatility of those are fairly low. Obviously, in terms of general stocks as an asset class, they are far more volatile than other things, but those ones particularly perhaps aren't. So in my my sort of approach was right I'll, I'll use these as almost a ballast to my portfolio and then i'll build out around those so then i started to think about more growthy names i looked at sort of long-term trends things that are happening in society my job allows me to sort of get access and i understand and see things that are happening in the city over the next 5 10 15 20 years i can see where things are moving and how we need to respond and that also then led me to sort of the, the type of companies i thought right yeah these are the ones that i want to invest in these are the companies that I think over the next 15, 20 years will be your household names, will be your companies that grow. Are you comfortable talking a little bit more about that and how your job has impacted it and the benefits of it? Yeah, absolutely. So I think there's two prong, actually. It's, it's probably my job and my degree. So my, my degree actually was in history, my undergrad, and I did a master's in history as well. So nothing to do with sort of finance, investing, accounting. And my job involves looking at, as I said, long-term trends, looking at what's happening in London, the city, and seeing how things are changing and things are moving. So if we just take my degree, part of my degree of studying history is to take lots and lots of information, distill all that information, understand different points of view, and then essentially come to a recommendation or a decision. And that, that, that is then basically the approach I took in looking at all these trends, all these things that are happening. 
those sort of things are the things that I've used. Those are sort of the things that I've understood and I've used them to help try and frame where I see the world is a five, 10, 15 years and allocate my money accordingly. Are there any stocks in your portfolio that you would say particularly reflect your view then of the next five, 10, 15 years? Yeah, so just taking out a few from here and talking a little bit about them. So we've got things like Fiverr International. So that that's obviously a that's obviously a gig economy based platform. People can sort of procure services, goods from there. We've got a couple of medical companies on there. So I've got Teladoc Health. Payments is another one as well. People are using different play- payment platforms. I've got Mastercard in there, which reflects that Square. So things that involve microchip processors, so NVIDIA, technology companies, Apple, all these sort of services I'll see over the next, again, 5, 10, 15 years as growing, even tenuously things like Lululemon. So if people are going to be working in between the office and working in between at home, something like that could flourish if people are starting to get a bit more different in what they wear. People are starting to go to fitness classes during the day or in the evenings, they can do that more. We're becoming much more digital. So when you were building out that portfolio at the beginning, in terms of your diversification, how did you go about it? Did you think about that at the start or did you just go one stock at a time? So I, I didn't. And I, I think that's probably one of my uh, early mistakes was I didn't think about sort of a, a portfolio, of say 25 names or 30 names. And here is what I wanted to do. I kind of went, I sort of rolled with it as it were. So as I said, I went for the first big names, put a couple of those in the portfolio. So I had Netflix, Google, Nvidia, the recognized Apple, the recognizable names. And then I thought actually now is the time to go for a bit more growthy ones because I've got quite a lot of those big companies. I also then realized I've got some index funds which basically duplicate pretty much those big companies. So I thought, right, let's start going to the bottom end. And then I thought, right, okay, let's start going for some more uh, retail offerings because I didn't have much retail in there. So I, I went for that. I then thought about social media. So actually in terms of like developing that portfolio that was a learning curve for me if if I was to do it again from the start I'd probably almost spend a month mapping out what I want the 30 35 stocks I I want to own look like and then trying to fill them in or or the types of companies I want and then filling them in I've also you know I, I thought maybe I should start thinking about UK stocks maybe I should start thinking about dividend stocks so I'm still in that process I think of working out what that portfolio looks like I think probably for the next two to three years, I'm going to be doing that saying, what am I comfortable with? Do I want some dividend in there? Do I want some UK listed companies in there? I don't know that yet. As I said, over the next two to three years, as I'm learning and developing, I I expect my portfolio to reflect that change. So when you say you would have, in hindsight, you would have made that list and then filled them in. What do you mean by filled them in? Do you mean you would have had to watch this and you'd have sort of, you'd have maybe gone through every month when you're adding money and said, well, this one looks the most reasonably priced. And then over time, hopefully you get a good chance to buy into most or all of them. Yeah. So I think, I think the way I would have done it was I would have said, okay, I want some, you know, I want, I want four or five or three or four blue chip companies. I want three or four UK based stocks that are growing. I, I want two or three dividend players. I want a couple of social media companies a couple of telemedicine, telehealth, whatever you want to call it, companies. I want a couple of retailers. And then, yeah, built a watch list around, okay, here are all the five, six potential retailers that I'd be interested in. And over the next couple of months, start filling that in. As I said, I don't think I did that. I mean, I definitely didn't do that. 
which I think has led to some natural imbalances in my portfolio. So at the start, I went in on the FANG stocks or some of the big ones. I put in quite a bit of my capital there and then started to build it out, which then meant that later on down the line on some of the other companies, I didn't have as much to allocate because I put them all in the big ones at the start. Do you think you have any imbalances remaining today? I think so. I think because I do still have index funds in my portfolio, I think the larger market cap companies such as Apple, Google, MasterCard, NVIDIA, Disney, but I really like Disney, so I'd probably still have that in there. I'd probably think about reducing those in size. I'd probably reduce some of those funds, some of those stocks that I know are in my index funds at at a large rating. So what do you have like an idea in mind of what proportion of your portfolio going forward you like to be index funds? versus individual equities? So I think I'd like it to be about 75% individual and then 25% index funds. That That's kind of how I'm operating. As I said, in five years time, I'll see how I performed against those index funds. I'm sort of tracking them as I go. And if I've sort of underperformed, then it might be, might be time to pack it in and just go full on index funds and leave it and not have to worry about anything or I may decide actually I you know I'm, I'm I'm doing okay so maybe I'll switch over completely to all individual stocks but I think I, I, I like the fact that I've got a little bit of a fallback there I've got uh, 25% of my portfolio as I said an index which feels quite quite good I've obviously got a pension which is in in various index funds as well so I feel I can be a bit more risky in my portfolio which I don't think I'm I'm doing right now certainly as I said with some of those big big blue chip companies I think I could be a bit more risky but as I think that's also part of my learning curve I think when I started off I was quite conservative maybe I should start taking a bit more risk I know I've got quite a long runway ahead of me the capital I'm investing isn't large so if some of those more riskier bets don't pay off it's not going to have a huge impact obviously on my life knowing as well as, as I said I've got the index funds and the pension there as well. What would you do if you were just starting investing today and you didn't have any prior knowledge of the stock market? So I think I'd probably start with index funds just as I did. I think index funds are a really good way to just learn about the stock market and be comfortable with market movements. I think it's quite scary when you start investing and you're not used to your money essentially on a daily basis going up and down one or two percent here and there. When you've just been putting your money into ISIS or, or short term bonds or whatever, you don't really see that you get sort of a coupon at the end of the year or your interest gets paid. But actually seeing it move on a daily basis is quite, it can be quite unnerving, especially if it's going down, obviously. So I'd probably start with index funds and just start learning, start reading, start building confidence. And that that essentially is what I did. If you like, see if you like it, if you like investing, are you interested in it? Do you keep checking on your portfolio? Do you look at what's in your portfolio and see what's happening? Do you, are you interested in sort of the longer term trends that are happening in the world that you think you'd benefit from? And if you don't enjoy it, then that's just as informative, right? You then just leave it as index funds and, and forget about it. And that's fantastic. And that probably works for most people. And then if you do like it, I think the next step is then to start looking at individual companies. I think probably the best thing to do is similar to what I did just to start off with, buy things you know, get used to the fact that you're part owner of a business. You're not sort of just buying names on a on a ticker. You're, you're buying a bit of a business. And I'd also maybe start talking to people about it. And that, that's been the wonderful thing about Twitter, I think, when I joined later last year, was you start to see people, you start to meet people who are just 
similar to you, like-minded individuals who who don't know anything about who may not have known anything about investing, but are now you know posting incredible returns. And you build that community. So I think if you were to start doing that, that's a really useful way of actually just getting talking about it. Talk, you know, find a partner, maybe a brother, maybe a sister, maybe a friend, and start talking about it. So how useful has Twitter been then for you as a new investor? So it's actually been quite mixed. So at the start, I found it quite demoralizing actually seeing some of the returns people had that, you know, people were posting portfolios. It is quite demoralizing seeing people post like 20, 30x on their portfolios and you think you've missed out. Essentially, I came in and I thought, oh, I've, I've missed out. You know, I should have bought Netflix four years ago. I should have bought X four years ago when I had when I started investing and I could have had all these fantastic returns. And initially it was like, oh, you know, maybe this, maybe I'm not going to get this because it's already happened in the past. In addition, the way I started following people, you obviously organically grow your follow list. I, for, for whatever reasons, the Twitter algorithm meant that I started following all these people who are talking about charts and lines across charts and arrows here and all these acronyms that I, I didn't know about or, or knew what I meant. And I just also wasn't interested in. And there's also quite a few people on on Twitter, particularly who I was following in the investing world, who essentially had a heightened sense of self-importance. And that that was quite rubbish to be honest but I spent a little bit of time and that's all it takes a little bit of time curating your list getting rid of some of those people who are you know posting rubbish or posting charts I'm sure they're useful I'm sure people make lots and lots of money out of it I'm sure people are successful it wasn't for me and pivoted my my Twitter follow list to essentially people talking about mindset people talking about the right behaviors people talking about trends experts in certain areas of companies that I invest in that that is hugely hugely important it also just has given me access to loads of reading and articles so people post loads of really useful articles from all around the world i think that's the other thing as well is that sometimes forget that on twitter you're talking to people in in countries all over the world who come from different perspectives and different views and that that's obviously fantastic i've also found it to be quite politically neutral and not that toxic which again when you're thinking about investing it's quite useful to have that framework and, and to be quite neutral about things. Um, you might miss some of the, the the big winners if you if you start to sort of go down certain certain roads. So I found Twitter to be really useful, but after a sort of period of about two months where I thought this is the worst thing in the world, why am I doing this? I do agree. I think I think it is really useful, but you need to spend that time initially sort of refining your follow list. Otherwise, it can be quite dangerous or, or just completely not helpful. So with that in mind, what Twitter accounts do you enjoy following the most? So I have really enjoyed a list out a couple here. So Investment Talk, you obviously have had him on a couple of times, Connor, who's been fantastic. I really enjoyed his sort of analysis. He's quite clear. He makes things sound so easy and simple. I wish I had that sort of skill. There's another British investor on on there I follow called Adventures in Financial Independence. I don't know if you follow him. I do, yes. Uh, and, and again, him, that initially was like, oh gosh, it's quite demoralizing seeing people just like me, me, maybe two, three years ago investing and get and, and gaining all these crazy returns. But as I said, as I've, I've followed a bit more detail, I've read his Substack, I'm like, actually, yeah, this is this is kind of what I subscribe to. I can get involved in this. It's not, you know, all, all bravado and, and SPACs and penny stocks and whatever. It's actually genuine thoughtful processes there's a motley fool analyst called john rotonti who i follow 
he's fantastic because he shares lots of articles he's a prolific reader so essentially my morning reading is very much dictated by what he's tweeted out and and again there'll be like really trends and like some funny stuff in there and some humorous stuff which is really great and then another guy called charlie biello i think that's that's it or billello who through charts tells various different stories as well which is again fantastic okay what are the best books that you've read on investing and how much do you read in general so reading is something that comes quite naturally to me as i mentioned sort of my my degree and my background is very much reading based as it were so I'd say some of the more important books are Morgan Housel, Psychology of Money. So that book really resonated with me simply because it's not coming from a financial background. And I think this is something that has, I guess, not damaged my confidence, but certainly not helped build my confidence is where I know I don't have a financial based background. So I'm always thinking, am I missing something here? Do I need to be fully versed on how to read a financial statement? Do I need to be fully versed on how to look at a organization bottom up? And I obviously don't know those things, but what I do know and what the skills that I have, I use that skill set to the, to the best of my ability. And actually something like Morgan Housel's book, in it, he essentially argues that when it comes to money and investing, it's more about the psychology and not actually about the, you need to know everything inside out. The other thing I've read but actually it's a podcast but I do read the transcripts because I just find it easier a bit to follow is the Rule Breakers Investing podcast but I've read the transcripts as I said I essentially use that as a as a book which again I, I think um, I'm, I'm a subscriber to the Rule Breaker service and some of the stuff in there is absolutely gold again a lot of it is about mindset and about thinking the right way having the right behaviors so I really value that and also as I said the authors of both of those are from non-traditional finance background so that that to me has given me confidence actually these are ordinary folk like me that can also do it as well and also I read quite widely on sort of general trends general changes I subscribe to the economist which is great for that I enjoy reading history books to this day I've kind of I went for about three years after my degree of not reading any history books at all it was almost like I need a detox and now I do enjoy Niall Ferguson I know you've read many of his books I read quite a few of his and I particularly enjoy reading about sort of West African history. So I tend to do a lot of reading on that. Yeah, I've not read much about African history. I've only read about African history like, in relation to like um, like empires and uh, colonialism. Yeah. So, so I've, read, yeah. I've read about the impacts of that but in terms of like the actual history of the countries. I've not really read anything about that. Is that what you're reading about or is it like more to do with the empires and colonialism and that aspect? is to do with the former yeah so more sort of about gen- general histories of the areas and most of it actually does tend to start with colonialization because actually that's, that's actually when a lot of the history was written in sort of the the lexicon as we know it today prior to that it's quite difficult to sort of get narratives of of history there through traditional means so it, a lot of it is sort of post 1900 history which I, as i said is something that i i'm just interested in i think that that's actually helped in my investing I'd say in a way of not being sort of bogged down too much and just reading about the same thing and just reading a bit different things expanding your mind yeah I mean a lot of the problem was um prior to colonialism a lot of the history was passed down from word of mouth and then oral history yeah yeah, and then and then and then the empires came in and completely trashed that didn't they but so yeah we just don't know it's yeah it's hard it's as I said it's hard to study uh, the history of the region prior to that without having a really good understanding of oral history and even then as you said a lot of records I mean records just weren't kept so it, it there's a lot of tenuous 
research done on that period of time because it has to be tenuous because it's not sort of written down or formalized you read it's, it's not quite african history but have you ever read Frankopan? i've not no it's called um the silk roads i think and basically it's, it's a history of the world but whereas like most history books are from the perspective of the west and their impact on the other countries he does it from the perspective of the east so, for example, uh, like when he's going through all these historical events, it's only like how it touched like the eastern countries directly. So, with like World War Two, we'd only really like talk about like what was going on in the colonies rather than like what was going on with like Battle of Britain and stuff. Um, uh, that's that's really, really interesting. That's, that's the sort of right up my street. So that's definitely something to put on my list. Thanks, Sam. Yeah, he's, he's actually got another. I mean, he's got quite a few books actually, but he's got another one he did about the Crusades, and I think that's a similar thing. The first Crusade, right. from like the perspective of the East. Um, I've not read that one, but it, it is on my list. <laughs> anyway, we'll get back to investing now. Uh, what are the best resources that you use then for investing, and these can be free or paid? So the two paid services I used and used to this day and really have helped me grow as an investor and also just pick stocks are Motley Fool Rule Breakers, I'm a subscriber, and Seven Investing. So those are used for recommendations, reports. I find the reports fantastic, really easy to read. There's a whole bunch of free stuff. I use a website called Pension Craft. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's a, again, he's a British guy as well, um, who talks about macroeconomics, which is quite interesting in a very easy to understand concept. Again, he's not from a finance background, so he's talking about this almost as a layperson and as, as concepts, it's quite easy to understand. I listen to a podcast called Meaningful Money. So that's a resource I use. And that's about, again, similar thing, mindset, talking about how, how behaviours impact money and how we should think about money, which is good. And then in terms of resources for stock investing, I use Coifin and a new website called Port Sido, I think that's what it's called. And I use that as a portfolio tracker. And both of them are quite useful for charts, historic data, looking at what's happened um, to sort of uh, various different financial metrics. Have you ever considered um, getting a UK subscription? So like Motley Fool's UK service, for example? So I actually, I had a free trial of it once. And I, I maybe... Again, it was probably around the time when I just started investing. And I was probably, I think I was just overwhelmed by it, to be honest, in terms of the information. And I probably, well, I definitely wasn't in the right mindset to be thinking about individual stock picking because I, I just didn't act on it. But I remember taking out a free subscription trial period um, and going through it and thinking, I, I can't actually make heads or tails of this. I don't know whether I should go for this or that or how many. I don't think, um, it, as I said, I was in the right frame of mind. I would consider it now, actually, because as I've said, it is something I'm looking to expand on my portfolio as UK-based companies. Now, I think I mentioned, I think I heard you mention on a couple of podcasts, they do also recommend American companies as well, right? So yeah. there's obviously a crossover there, which I, I wouldn't be a big fan of because I'm looking for UK companies, but you know, it could be worth adding to the, the list. Yeah, so what they do is they split the recommendations. So they, they split them, they call one side, so this is a recommendation every two weeks. Uh, once a fortnight, you get a fire recommendation. And once a fortnight, you get an ice recommendation. And the fire is meant to be basically going for capital growth, really. Um, so that's right. really trying to find multi-baggers. The problem is there's not, there's just, they are, there's just less stocks in the UK market and a lot of them yeah. are less attractive. So because of that, I think they 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 only started doing it like a year or maybe two years ago. 
But I think they basically took the view that like, really, if we want these multi-baggers, we may as well use, you know, all the resources we've got from like the sister companies and stuff, because they, I think they, they found themselves like recommending a lot of the same stocks as well. Right. There's not that many, because it was mainly limited to FTSE 350 companies. So I think it was very quickly, like you, you identify the growers quite quickly. And then it's like, well, <laughs> you know, do you recommend something that's not as good as you just keep, re, re, you keep re-recommending the same ones. So I think that's partly why they did it. And then every other two weeks, you've got ICE, which is, that's like more of a income generating stock. So the idea is it's like a solid stock with a good dividend, but you're not going to get as much capital growth. Those are the ICE recommendations are pretty much all UK. I'd say the fire ones are, it's probably 50, 50 between UK and US. So you, you're probably going to get about 75% of the picks are going to be UK. And then on top of that, they've got the best buys now, similar to the, the American services. It is, I'd say it's worth having. I probably ignore the majority of the recommendations, but every now and then you do get something where it's like, oh, that, that looks quite good. But I'd say the reason I ignore most of them is as well, because once you've been through, say, like the last two years of reports, or even further, if you want to go further back, you know, a lot of those top quality or the higher quality companies in the UK, you end up identifying yourself. So you right, almost, yeah. it's very, very <laughs> good for building that UK watch list. And then after that, you know, the reports are quite interesting, but it might only be like once every two, once every three months that something comes along where you're like, actually, I want to have a proper look at that. Yeah. So that that's actually something that I, I would probably consider as my rule breakers investing subscription expires. I'll, I'll have a think about whether I want to add the UK one. Certainly, you can obviously look back through the past recommendations, which some of them are live. So I'll, I'll probably think about doing that actually when that expires you do it just sign up for the, like the newsletter or something and if you just wait eventually they'll send you an email where they're either offering you like 50 percent off for a year or like two years for the right. price of one it's a bit like a domino's you, you don't pay full price because if you wait you, long enough, full- you will get a deal <laughs> that's the trick okay that's a that's a really good tip <laughs> who do you look up to as an investor so the person i probably look up to most as i as i mentioned is my dad so he had a long-term mindset right from the start but again the way and the journey he went on is very different to probably the journey I'm going to go on he went through the property market I went through I'm obviously hoping to go through the stock market he sort of achieved what he wanted mid-50s he's he's quite happy he's semi-retired he's enjoying life essentially I look up to that and say that that's essentially what I want I think what I learned from him basically is, is patience so these sort of things don't happen overnight. These things happen over 15, 20 years. And year 21, 22, 23, the compound growth is just crazy. So I think just, again, the different ways that he's made it work and his work ethic is, is essentially what I look up to as, a, as an investor. Interestingly, obviously, he's not a stock market investor. He's a property investor. But I think the principles still apply. Do you think you'd ever consider then going into property investment? It's not something I would consider at the moment so if I'm being honest I'm quite I like to be quite hands-off I don't I'm sure you can do this in property investing and be quite hands-off he's quite hands-on and that's all I've seen but I used to remember you know when we were when we'd go on family holidays he would he would have his phone on and have all of his tenants numbers there just in case this was in the sort of late 90s 2000s where roaming was ridiculous so you'd have to get a roaming package out and, and he'd be constantly just checking and making sure that everything was all right. And it felt quite hands-on. It felt quite stressful every year or every two years, he'd have to get new tenants in, et cetera, et cetera. Also from, from a 
from the perspective of sort of return on investment, it's quite hard to get into property investment at the moment, particularly in some of the areas around the south. Maybe, maybe in some other areas, it may not be the case. So it's not something I'm looking at now. I don't think I want the sort of aggro, I guess, that comes with property investing. Maybe again in a few years' time, when I'm a bit more comfortable, when I've got a bit more time, or maybe I might just be a bit more interested in it. But at the moment, it's not something I see as um, I'm interested in at the moment. What do you know now that you wish you'd known when you started? And what what advice would you give to yourself when you were starting out? And also, what are the biggest ma- mistakes that you've made so far? Great. So this is a, I love this question because I read before I started investing all the things you should know before you start. I read all the mistakes that the top 10 investors make. And I read all the what you should not do when you invest. And I made every single one of them because that's just how it works, right? So... I'll go through the sort of mistakes and what what I learned and what I should have known. So selling winners early. So I, I mentioned it at the start. I bought Tesla in 2016. I made some money on it. I thought I was a genius. So I sold it. We now know where things are now with Tesla. So that's obviously a, a, a mistake. Selling winners early, win is win, right? So why, why did I sell back then? taking your time so that's another one there's no rush so again I read this mistake around taking your time thinking about things and I'd like to think that that's who I am generally but last year as things were sort of all kicking off in the mid to mid 2020s I started investing and I got quite excited and and I sort of built up my portfolio too quickly I probably went too hard on some stocks because I kept seeing them go up and I thought right I need to get in before they carry on going up but actually, there's no rush on these things. If I'm thinking again about a, a 10, 15, 20 year time horizon, I wish I told myself there's no rush. You can trip in money into this stock that you like over a six month period. It might even go cheaper than what you're paying now. And I wish I'd sort of really understood that. Third, invest in what you're comfortable in. And again, this is something I, I made a mistake in. I, I made an investment in a, in a company I wasn't massively comfortable with that investment from a you know moral point of view or whatever point of view. I just it just didn't sit right with me. I didn't have the sleepless nights as you hear, but I, I kept thinking about it more than I should have. Oh, should I invest in this company? Oh, I've I've now invested in it. Oh, I'm not sure whether I want to invest in it. And actually I then sold out of it and, and I felt so much better. And I thought actually the lesson there is invest what you're comfortable in. And that that could be you know, it's different for everyone. And that, that comes to, on to my fourth point, which is don't compare yourself to others. So again, something I read beforehand, everyone's playing a different game. Everyone's got different risk tolerances. Everyone's got different ideas. But actually, you've got your own. And I was, again, probably fueled by things like Twitter, seeing things. And I sort of rushed into comparing myself to other people and saying, oh, I should have a portfolio just like this. So I kind of made a couple of purchases based on that. Obviously they didn't sit well with me for whatever reason. So I think those are the four things I'd say in terms of, I wish I'd known those things before I started. I think the most important thing is I've I've tried to put in mechanisms in place to stop those happening again. It's not a case of, oh, you know, I made this mistake, I learned from it and I won't do it again. I, chances are I might do it again because, because I did it in the first place, right? So what I've tried to do is put in mechanisms to ensure I don't. So selling winners early, I've started investing with my partner. I got her investing actually in March, 2020 last year. So her returns are incredible because she invested right at the bottom. And with her, we, on a monthly basis, 
look through our portfolios, decide what to invest in, and we decide to buy and sell together, which means that actually you're having someone else to bounce our ideas off, you're very unlikely then to make those sort of rash selling decisions because something's gone up in, in, in value. In terms of taking your time, again, I now make a concerted effort to invest over a six month period. So if I like a company, I'll be dividing the initial investment by six and I'll just do it over a six month period on autopilot on the first day of every, every month. So there's no, even if it goes down, even if it goes up, I'll be there. Similarly for like comparing yourself to others, I think I've put in mechanisms in place to stop that happening. I want to make sure that when I look at my portfolio, this reflects where I think the world will be in five years time, or certainly where I want the world to be in five years time, in 10 years time. And I think all of these things are, are, are grounded by basically having someone to talk to about investing, not doing it on your own. And right at the start, if I started investing with someone, I think I probably maybe would not have made the mistakes, certainly not have made them to the level I did. But if you've got a couple of people you're bouncing ideas off, you're not going to be making rash decisions. How have you evolved as an investor? So I think at the start, I was quite impulsive. I was quite itchy. I wanted to do stuff. I was learning. I thought I needed to be active, you know, on a weekly basis. I need to be buying. I need to be selling. Investing is really weird because it's quite counterintuitive. To be successful, I think you have to do very little. You, you pick wisely. You select the best companies. You put your money in it and you don't do anything. And I think that's quite counterintuitive when you're putting your money into something, right? You're thinking, oh, I need to be on top of it. I need to be checking it. But actually what I've evolved over the last year is certainly that investing is about mindset. It's about the relationship with money. So I wouldn't say I was impulsive in sort of chasing penny stocks and things like that. I never did that, but I was certainly impulsive in getting where I wanted to get to. So I thought, you know, I, I want to be in a position where maybe I've got a nice portfolio built out that's growing at a good rate. But again, I, maybe I wasn't in the right mindset as, as, as an investor. And I think over the last year, I've evolved into thinking, right, I need to be patient. I need to be rational. I need to think about rhythms and doing things on a week, on a monthly basis. And I think the final thing is in terms of my evolution of, of being comfortable and confident in investing. So I referenced this in, the, in, in a few questions ago where I wasn't confident in investing because I don't have a traditional finance background. And I think I've evolved over the last year to realize, actually, I don't necessarily need one. The people I interact with on Twitter, the people I follow, the videos of people I watch talking about stocks, they aren't from traditional investing backgrounds. I've evolved to feel, actually, I can, I can do that just like they have. Yeah, I mean, in terms of having an, like, a financial background, I mean, you, you can... I mean, you can read a book or two and pretty quickly you can pick up like how to read an income statement or a balance sheet. There's not really much more you need beyond that. And a lot, a lot of like the financial stuff you need, it's actually quite simple. So yeah, I, I don't think that's a barrier at all, really. Um, yeah. And like you said, like you said earlier, there's so many, there's so many successful investors that actually came from creative backgrounds. So like um, David Gardner, who you mentioned, he actually did, he did a literature degree, I think. Exactly. And, and, that, and that's that's quite inspirational, right? So you're someone who's coming from an arts and humanities creative background and and with his sort of view or worldview or vision or whatever whatever you want to call it, has, has been a very successful investor. And as you said, from a non-traditional background, so those sort of things, the things that I, that those sort of people, I guess, are, are people I didn't know existed when I started investing in 2016, 17, 18. It's only when I started sort of being more active that I 
that I came across these people that oh yeah this this person's got a you know English degree or a or a arts degree and and they're, they're just as successful so yeah what are your thoughts on the current valuations of stocks listed in the US so I think by any objective measure they're high they've obviously been pulled back somewhat over the last few months valuations of top companies are, are always going to be high right so unless there's a freak event or some sort of major crash so the pandemic obviously being a freak event prices came down valuations maybe became a bit more acceptable but essentially I the, the way I come to look at it again from a non-financial background is that if there's a premium company a premium product any any walk of life a premium product an apple product it's you're going to pay premium for it you probably will end up paying slightly over the odds for that apple product it's probably not worth objectively what you've paid for it because that's just the way it is they've got their brand they've got their marketing and you you're caught up in it essentially so i think there is an element of that when you're looking at companies so the top companies are going to be valued highly some of them may be valued but overvalued and may not even grow into those valuations over many many years and i think it's obviously we have to be careful because there's lots of rubbish companies or momentum companies or whatever you want to call them that are also valued really high that aren't sort of premium but they are just because they've essentially ridden on the wave of this but i think the way i've sort of squared the circle of high valuations is over a 5 10 15 year period which again is, is what i'm targeting the theory is that they they will smooth themselves out if i'm investing on a regular basis on a rhythm which is what i'm doing in theory the valuation at which I started investing at or, or over the next couple of years, that should balance itself out. Now, I'm very aware that over the last five, six years, the, the returns that particularly the American stock market has provided has been incredible, which suggests that over the next five to 10 years, you're not going to get those returns. And that's also kind of my thinking as well in terms of why I want to think about UK companies as well. So I make sure I have a diversified portfolio. But yes, I, I think they are quite high. So if you look at any UK listed stocks or the UK market generally at all yet? And if so, have you formed any opinions on what their valuations are like? So I've, I've not looked specifically at UK stocks up until about, I'd say about three months ago, inspired very much by your podcast, actually, you obviously concentrate quite heavily on UK listed companies. And some of the companies that you talked about attracted me. Airtel Africa, interestingly, was, was quite... Um, high on my list as well, particularly also about reading up about the, the continent itself. I know obviously a lot of its businesses in Africa, but it's UK listed, which is quite strange. But anyway, so I have become interested in those, those uh, some of those companies. Unilever actually is on my watch list at the moment as well. So I think the way that my portfolio was built didn't lend itself well to UK listed stocks at the time that I was investing. However, as I said, as I've built it up now and I'm starting to think about expanding that a bit and making that a bit more diverse, the UK has come into it. I think there are some really attractive companies and there's some good companies, there's some attractive valuations. I think what I've kind of always been put off about the UK market is the, the, the organisations on the UK, particularly the FTSE 100, aren't the sort of um, growthy tech trend-setting companies. They are your, there are of course some of those and, and, and within those organisations, there are things that are going on innovation, but they certainly isn't as much as, as the US, you know, you've got your big banks, you've got your big miners, you've got your big oil companies, you've got your big gas and utilities, which again, all probably do have lots of innovation going on, but they've not quite captivated me as much as say the American market. Yeah, I, I think it's quite easy, especially when you've looked at the American market first and then go to the UK. I think it's easy to sort of look at the, the growth and almost be disappointed. But 
yeah i think it's important to remember like with a lot of the us companies you do really have to pay up for that growth you know so like if you're paying 30 times sales for the growth a lot of those returns have been pulled forward and that doesn't mean the stock can't still go on to beat the market over 10 years but say you've got a stock like let's just say Hargreaves lands down where it's which it's a quality business it's market leader it's in an industry that's just going to continue to grow and take market share certainly for the next 10 years you'd, you'd expect if that business can grow at 10 percent a year and it trades at a PE of 25 it'll do fine and you know oh, there's, uh, yeah there's maybe an argument that it could actually do better than some of the us companies because obviously it's compounding at 10 percent a year but it's got that much lower valuation whereas if something's compounding at 20 or 30 percent a year but it's trading at a price to sales of 30 it's got to put up those growth numbers and i, th- I think it's it, it's like you say it's it's it, the valuations are very different and that that means you can still do very very well in investing in very very good businesses but yeah if you want a business that's growing at 100 percent a year i've not found one yet that's certainly on the FTSE 350. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And actually, you, you mentioned Hargreaves Lansdowne, that, that's on my list, as is right move, because again, those are companies where I, I see really good long term trends in those areas. And they're companies that I definitely will be thinking about over the next six months. So how do you think about your allocation and position sizing? So the honest answer is in terms of large positions, I, I don't know, because I've not been in that position. I've not seen how large one position can get because of, of, a, of a stock gain. So with that, I'm going to basically see how I feel when my portfolio starts concentrating and some of those position sizes get quite large. I'll see how I feel. I'll probably jot it down, speak to people about it and say, you know, let, let's have a bit of a chat about this. I think that's quite a personal choice when it comes to sort of how large one stock is in your portfolio. Some people are quite happy with it being 80%. Some people are happy with it being 8%. I, I don't know is the honest answer to that. So I'm going to have to just essentially learn that over the next two to three years how comfortable am i when a stock gets to 10 percent? i've not hit that yet but when it does i'm like okay right what do i think about this it probably also would depend on the company that's occupying that position so when i think about sort of allocation i i do try and go with my initial sizing of being one percent of my portfolio and then buy over a six month period of time as i said but in terms of um how large that then will get to as I said, I'm not quite sure what I'm going to be thinking and feeling when that happens. Do you have a maximum? So you start, do you start with 1% and then what, how much would you be willing to add? So I start with 1% and the maximum I would add from a cost basis point of view is 5%. Okay. Have you got any way you've done that yet? I think they're, they're the big initial purchases I made of Apple, of Netflix, of Shopify. Those are the ones, MasterCard, those are the ones that are initially filled out at five percent when i started can you talk us through your analysis process and how you'd actually what you actually do when you're looking at a new investment and also you mentioned that you've got a couple of services could you talk about how they tie in and what role they play if at all yeah so essentially i come across companies through various different means so twitter as being one such example podcasts such as yourselves and a couple of the other podcasts i listen to i tend to then put those companies that I sort of list or shortlist or find on Twitter or wherever, I put them through those two services to see whether they have been recommended initially. And if they have, I'll obviously read the recommendation. I tend to digest it as much as possible. I'll try and find out a bit more about the company as well. The next thing I do, if I like, if I like the company, if it's been recommended, I tend to read the 10K or the IR page on the on the website. They tend to have really glossy 
presentations as well. Obviously, of course, they're sales pitches, so you've got to take that with a pinch of salt. But at this stage, I'm specifically thinking about what they do, how they do it, uh, what is management talking about in terms of some of the risks, the competitors. What I essentially I'm, I'm talking about is some of the softer things that a, a company is doing. Um, what industry it's in? Is it a growing industry? Will it be benefiting from demographic trends? Will it be def benefiting from other things? I, I suppose that's what people call total addressable market, but I'm sort of looking at it from a qualitative perspective. And then I go to the other, other side of things. So I look at things like, is it a highly recognizable brand? Could, could I explain what this company does to someone? Is it easy to talk about? And do I believe that this company is actually genuinely making the world better? And again, I know a lot of people will have different views on that, but that is where I bring my personal touch into it, I guess. And that's where I talk about whether I'm comfortable with it or not. So all of that's kind of the soft stuff. And then for the financial side of things, I use a lot of YouTube on here. So I tend to find the companies and people who have talked about them on YouTube. Motley Fool has their own live video channel. I think it's, it, it's a television show or it's a, it's a live stream. And on there, they often will have contributors who are looking at these companies from a financial statement point of view so they'll be talking about things and things to watch out for how the company's growing what sort of things they're, they're spending their money on is that going down is that going up so i tend to essentially outsource that financial aspect of it as i said at the moment it's not something i'm comfortable with i'm hoping over the next year it's something i grow into so at the moment that's something that i essentially farm out to and then that style obviously naturally lends itself to us stock so that's where I've essentially landed when um, I've talked through my uh, process. If you're looking to like learn a bit more about like the financial side, the, I'd recommend the defensive value investor. The guy who writes it, he's he's got a very very like I don't know how to describe it. It's, it's sort of like a very Ben Graham style approach. So I wouldn't necessarily right. invest the way he does. But what the book's really good for is he he almost goes through like every single part of the income statement and balance sheet and what he looks for in the rules he's got. And right. you're not you're not going to read it. You're unlikely to read it and come away and think, well, that's how I want to do it. I mean, you might do, but but you what it what it will do is it'll probably like get you thinking about like what things you should be looking at. And you might you might decide you're actually like you know some of the stuff you know he has like rules about like the highest PE or pay and stuff, which I I don't right. I don't really agree with because I think if the growth's high enough, you should be willing to pay any you know, PE or even price to sales. But then he's also yeah. got stuff where he talks about, well, how much how much debt is he comfortable with? And, you know, like like debt as a proportion of operating profit. And that it's 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 very, very good at going through. And it almost, it starts as if from the point of view of someone who doesn't know anything. So I definitely recommend that. And then there's another little book called, and it, it's a, this is a really easy read. You can read it in like a couple of hours, I think, but it's one of the Mary Buffett, Buffettology books. And it's called Warren Buffett and the Interpretation of Financial Statements. And that's just, it's a really easy read. And it's basically like, what are the things based on like what he said over the years that Buffett actually looks for in the numbers? And how do you go out, go and find that? And again, it's it's quite simple stuff, really. It's, you know, it's just avoiding debt and, you know, quite simple stuff like that. And it just tells yeah. you where to go. So de I definitely recommend checking those out. And both of them are quite easy reads. That's great. I'll put them on my reading list. For someone who's a newer investor, basically, I guess, how well do you think they can do without knowing that much if they were willing to pay for quality services? So I'm talking like you're seven investing and you're Motley Fools. Because I think a lot of people basically they don't really appreciate that you can have you can basically have these guys do the research for you and almost cherry pick from their recommendations 
without having to do a huge amount of work yourself. And obviously the more you do, the better it is. But I think a lot of people don't actually appreciate how easy it is to get started with some of the services that are available. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. And I, I referenced that earlier when when I did sign up to the UK share advisor for Motley Fool, I was overwhelmed, even though it's designed for a newish investor to come in and, and pick and make a portfolio. I think actually the service has just got better over the last four years, because when I signed up to the American one, it was very it, it was very intuitive. It was quite thorough. I got an email every day sort of guiding me through what I needed to do, which was fantastic. Again, it, it was worth its weight in just that, as opposed to the recommendations itself. I think as a newer investor, if you are picking stocks without a solid recommendation service, you really need to know what you're doing. You need to know your quant. You need to know your qual. I think if you are picking stocks without any sort of backing like that and you don't know what you're doing, you're probably picking momentum stocks you're probably picking stocks off twitter you're borrowing conviction essentially from other people which which when things start to go pear-shaped you'll essentially be bombed out the market and you probably won't return again which is which is obviously not great so i think if you're a new investor it is worth paying for some of these services some of these services also offer free trials that as you said they offer really cheap deals they'll offer 30-day guarantees so just try it try it for 30 days see how it goes and pick a couple and, and and get going i think the key thing with individual stock picking is you you i feel like you do have to be moderately interested in the stock market in companies in organizations in work where, where you think the world is going because i think it's not quite a set it and forget it like index funds i think you need to do that and that obviously will then hopefully lend itself to more information and you seeking to understand companies better how much time do you would you say you spend a month on investing in your own portfolio so on my portfolio a couple of hours a month me and my partner sit down we look at the recommendations of the services that have come through we'll read we'll read through them we'll see which ones we're, we're we like we, we may also just add to some of our winners that we already have in our portfolio and between us we'll kind of decide how we want to allocate our money so that's a couple of hours a month on a weekly basis, I tend to do about four to five hours, but I built that into my day. So on my walk in the morning or the afternoon, I'll listen to a podcast about a company I'm, I'm, I'm currently invested in or thinking about. I'll listen to maybe one of the seven investing podcasts. I'll listen to Rule Breakers on a weekly basis. And then every morning I've got, I've got my sort of subscription set up for various different news websites in New York Times, et cetera they all come through. I'll spend, again, half an hour to an hour reading through some articles while I'm having my coffee and breakfast. So I've built that into my day. I've almost kind of made some of that automatic and not specifically about investing, but just generally about what's happening in the world, which obviously lends itself quite nicely to investing. But I think the trick here is to think about building into your life where you're not actually having to go out of your way to do it. What are your thoughts on Bitcoin as an investment? So I'm I'm not sure I fully understand Bitcoin as an investment per se. What I think I'm really interested in is the blockchain and the potential it could have for sort of major disruption to difficult industries, to industries that haven't been disrupted. So property transactions, land transactions in the UK, if you've ever tried to buy a property in the UK, it's an absolute nightmare. Healthcare and records and things like that, it could help address some of the privacy issues that many, many people are having around data. I'm really interested and fascinated as to where the blockchain technology can go. But 
as Bitcoin goes specifically, I'm quite happy to sit on the sidelines and, and see what happens. I, I don't know, but maybe the strong possibility is that the winners of blockchain technology aren't quite here yet, or probably the winners might be some of the old school technology companies like Microsoft, Google, Nvidia that benefit from the technology. But Bitcoin per se, it's something that I, as I said, I, I'm quite happy to sit on the sidelines here and let other more braver people than me get involved. And there's a book, and I can't remember what it actually is. There's a, there's a book that's really good, like talking about the different uses of like the blockchain and what it could potentially be used for. Right. Oh, here we go. I think I found it. So it's called The Truth Machine, The Blockchain and the Future of Everything. That's that's quite interesting. Um, if you like it, the authors have written uh, another book on that's more like related to Bitcoin. But this one does look at like the actual blockchain and like the different things you could use it for. So like like you're saying, like like losing it for like keeping like um like property records and stuff and like like digitizing, for example, like in um like I guess it's in like a lot of um in a lot of African countries where there's actually a lot of wealth there, but the problem is there's no like legal ownership. So for example, a lot of yeah. people like they might own the house, but they can't prove they own it. So they can never take out a loan against it and stuff like that. So that that's a very good book. You might need to like wrap your head around bits as you're reading it, but it is a it is a good book. I'll add it to my burgeoning reading list. <laughs> it's getting bigger with each question. So now that's the end of the the more general questions. So the rest, the next part of the interview is just about your portfolio specifically and some of the stocks in it. Why did you decide to make Apple your largest position? So part of the reason was an element of circumstance. So it was the first individual stock purchase I made and the platform I used, Hargreaves Lansdowne, which I'm, I think you use as well or, or certainly have. I do, yes. Quite a lot yeah. yeah, so they... You can only obviously buy individual shares, which is fine. Uh, they charge a transaction fee. They charge a FX fee. And essentially to make that appropriate, I, it, it meant that I had to invest a significant amount of money to have an acceptable percentage of fees, as it were. And actually, that, that was one of the sort of fringe mistakes I made around picking the right platforms and ISAs, et cetera. It's a minefield in the UK, which which I'm sure you're aware of and, and how, how many you can have and where. So partly it was a result of circumstance where, as I said, it was a case of, I needed to invest a certain amount to make my fees not five percent of my investment which would have been ridiculous um and part of it was as i said i wanted to, i wanted to form quite a ballast to build confidence in my portfolio having something like apple in there was was quite comforting to me and then as i started to build it out the capital i had essentially meant that as i thinned it out apple ended up being the largest one it has obviously gone up quite a bit over the last seven eight months so that's obviously actually longer than seven eight months it's since since about summer last year so that's obviously accounted for it as well is there a reason that specifically uber and tesla aren't in the portfolios just because in terms of from your job in terms of the way trends are changing and stuff you'd expect that those industries would be up there whether or not those businesses and the stocks are the right fits is another question but have you ever i'm assuming you've looked at them at least yeah so uber's a really interesting one i i like company i think it's a, a cool innovative company it's done some really good stuff it's obviously serving a purpose and, and definitely serving a need i think as a as a concept ride sharing as it stands i don't see how it can be a profitable industry without high levels of automation essentially they are betting on automation to 
make those big outsized profits automation particularly in city centers and cities where these ubers are used quite heavily i, I just don't see how that will work i i don't see how you can have a driverless uber running around covent garden where even at the best of times there's even in a pandemic there's still thousands of people walking across those narrow streets so uber i'm i'm not at the moment convinced that it's going to be ride sharing and, and obviously they've gone into food delivery which again i'm still very skeptical about in terms of as a business and how it makes money i'm not i'm not convinced by it at this stage so tesla is something that i definitely want to get involved in i think battery technology i think tesla again polarizing we can talk about is it a car company is it a technology company is it a battery company it's probably a mixture of everything i think i've looked at it from a perspective of a energy and battery based company which again i think is definitely the future it's something that i will look definitely be looking to add i have been to be honest i've been nervous about investing in it over the last six months given what's happened to its price so practicing what i preach about taking my time and being a bit small c conservative about it i'm quite happy to sort of wait a little bit and then probably over a six month period start dripping in money into something like tesla but it's definitely on my list yeah i think with uber for me it's one of I think it's a good product, but I don't think it's a very good business. Um, no. It's a bit similar. And you actually touched on it yourself, actually. But we just for anyone that's listening, we recorded this 21 July. And this this the week before we recorded this, me and John talked about, we looked at Just Eat on the podcast last week. And we we talked about the same thing with, with the delivery that Just Eat are wanting to get into. And we just don't, we don't really see how it's an attractive business model. You might be able to do it through an app, but you've still got to go and deliver the thing. And it's, it's just not profitable. Um, or it's very, very no, difficult I, to make it profitable. Yeah, I haven't listened to it yet, but I will listen to that because that, that sounds quite interesting. But yeah, I, ride sharing and food delivery, they, they're hard businesses to crack. And I, I don't see a path to profitability at the moment, as I said. I think, again, on on, on, the, Uber, on the Uber side or, or Lyft or any of those sort of multi, multimodal transport companies they are betting heavily on automation and where the big where the people are where the big money is in big cities in certainly western europe i don't see how that's going to happen you might get it in san francisco uh, maybe la something like that but new york city you're going to have driverless cars running down broadway that's highly unlikely yeah and as well it's just so difficult to actually predict like how far the technology away like how far away the technology is because like it could you could get to a point where it's 80 percent there quite quickly but then getting that that final 20 percent that could take 10 years and it's, it's one of the things where yeah. you, can't, you can't do it until it's perfect yeah you you know you could have a system developed you can have the tech in fact the technology for driverless cars exists you've got radar you've got lidar you've got all the tech but what you don't have is the data and algorithms to to run run the testing to, to essentially make sure that a driverless car does exactly what it does. That is going to take years to develop, to harness, to automate. And that's not even talking about any of the political issues at play, any of the legal issues and liability issues at play. I just think it's it's too it's in the too hard path for me. Yeah, and I think as well, like if you think about even like I mean, they're a lot safer now. But if you think about like what the accident rates were like when cars were originally, you know, back in like the nineteen hundred when they were the rel- relatively new. You just wouldn't get that now. Like when it launches, I think like we all, it's going to be on the front page of every newspaper across the world when you have the first accident or death that involves the automated car. (laughs) And it it, it actually, it wouldn't even, I think, I think they'd struggle 
even if they were less accident prone than normal drivers, just because I think it's so much more political. And that's yeah. something I struggle. I, I do. I do always take the view that when it launches, it has to be pretty close to perfect. It has to it be does. such a freak event for it to have an accident that it's, it's just so difficult to get there. Yeah, I, as I said, I think it's it's just it may happen one day, and it would be quite cool if it happened in my lifetime. But I'm I'm just not willing to bet on that. Yeah, and as well, like, is it going to be? Is it going to be Uber or is it going to be Tesla that does it? Or is it going to be, um, I mean, some of the companies in China are doing it. I think Baidu is one that was looking at it. There's lots of companies that have all yeah. tried it. And, exactly. you know, the, the industry might, it might happen, but it doesn't mean that predicting the company that's going to be the winner, that's also really, really tricky, especially when exactly. we're so far away. And then with, with Tesla, I just can't, I don't, I don't know if I'll ever be able to wrap my head around the valuation, to be honest. I think it's one that I'm just, I'll just happily continue to watch from the sidelines. But there's definitely, yeah, so I think one thing with Tesla that I've sort of thought as time's gone on is there's a lot of very, very intelligent people that are invested in it. So there's there's yeah. got to be something there, but I just can't figure out the valuation. Yeah, like I, I think I've said it several times, I'm not a massive expert on valuation, but even I could sort of look at Tesla and be like, I'm not sure about this. I'm not sure now is the right time to put some money into Tesla. Yeah, it's. I mean, if, if someone offered me a bet today, do I think the Tesla market cap will be higher or lower in 10 years' time? I, I would be quite comfortable betting quite a sizable amount on lower because I just don't, I don't see how even with the most optimistic sort of assumptions it gets there unless it becomes this like global energy company, which I think is, I don't know if it's that reasonable an assumption when you're talking about a car company to be honest. And the companies that do 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 that, because everyone cites, oh, well, when Amazon started as a bookstore and, and they were just selling books and stuff, you know, no one talked about Amazon Web Services. And I'm sure the valuation was high then. And now look at it. But there's a reason we just keep referencing Amazon all the time, because it's a freak, right? That That's the exception. So you can't expect, oh, Tesla's got a really high valuation and it's doing lots of interesting stuff in lots of spaces. Oh, in 10 years time, they probably have invented or, or worked up something that you've never even heard of. I'm not willing to take that bet. Yeah, I I don't think you can assume that. And I think with Amazon, I think the difference is, I mean, Amazon's never, I don't think it's, I saw a stat, it's, I, I could be wrong, but I don't think it's ever like traded above a price of sales of like six, or it hasn't since like well after the dot-com bubble, since after the dot-com bubble burst or yeah. something like that. So really, like if you were willing to take that risk with Amazon and you did think that, you you had the potential to be very very well rewarded whereas because the test valuation is already so high there's just a lot more that can go wrong than there was with amazon i know you can only lose 100 percent no matter what but i i guess with amazon there was there's if you looked at what amazon could be and compared that to the valuation until very very recently it was clearly underpriced whereas i think with tesla now you're looking at it and it's like it's almost at a point where it's like well it, it needs to do these things just to justify the current valuation. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of the, I mean, just, just to pull out a few um, companies in your portfolio. So you've got Shopify, DocuSign, Fiverr, Snow, and Appian. And these, these jumped out at me because all of these trade at very high price to sales multiples. So what, what's your approach when you're thinking about investing in these and how does the valuation play into it? Yeah, so definitely agree with the high valuations there. I think the first thing to say is that they make up around 15 or so percent of my portfolio. So 
I'm fairly happy with taking the sort of essentially a high risk bet on those from a valuation point of view, potentially getting the high reward. But also, as you said, actually, is that is that reward already priced in? That's obviously a risk that I've taken with a small part of my my portfolio. So I think these, these all of these companies that you talked about, they're leaders in their field, they're innovating, they're providing services that we need now. And, and I think, and hence why I invested in it, more so in the future, they're all fairly sticky and easy to use. And it is, I mean, I think something that I, again, through Twitter last year, evolved through was that it's very easy to say, oh, these high valuations, it's it's different this time because these are all now subscription-based with low with low costs and really high margins, and they don't have huge marketing costs and they have high customer retentions and all those sort of like things people are talking about saying, yeah, that's why it's different. And that's obviously quite dangerous because every time there's any sort of high valuation environment, the dot-com bubble, the financial crisis, oh, it's different this time. And they list all the reasons. I do understand some of those reasons. I do think, yep, a subscription model, a lot of these companies are DocuSign, Fiverr, sorry, DocuSign, Snowflake, Appian, subscription-based models. They obviously have recurring revenue that's likely to grow. Customers aren't likely to leave. So there is obviously here me hoping that they grow into their valuations and certainly exceed those valuations. Otherwise, I won't get any sort of decent return on them. But I'm happy to see how they play out. Again, it was probably partly when I was investing in companies where I thought, okay, these are the sort of things that I think will be happy uh, the, the trendsetters almost in five, 10 years time. And I'm happy to see how they play out. They may, they may not, they may go sideways for 10 years. But as I said, they're quite a small por- portion of my portfolio. Even if one of these win and they win big, that that should more than make up for the other ones. You follow Brian Feraldi? I do. So he's he's actually one of the people who I use for some of my bottom-up analysis on companies when it comes to things like financial statements. So he's yeah, he's definitely someone I, I follow quite closely. Yeah, it's just he springs to mind when you're talking about that because his approach is obviously, and for me, it's I'd, I'd say the one of the of the five examples we listed of Shopify, DocuSign, Fiverr, Snowflake, and Appian. Fiverr's the one I've looked at in the most detail because, as a business, I really, really like it. I just can't, I, I just can't bring myself to pay like thirty-seven times sales or whatever it is. I just can't do it. I, but I love the I business. Think- have you got a competitor for Fiverr? I think you've got Upwork. I've got Upwork, yeah. But I mean, it came from the fact that I, I've actually used them both over the years. Right. So I, I've used I've used Upwork as a like as an outsourcer. I used to write articles on it, and then my dad used to use Upwork as well a lot. So I actually on the buying side. So I've seen both sides of Upwork. Fiverr, uh. I've only experienced on the buying side, and I, I I like them both, and I view them as very different businesses. In that I, I sort of view Fiverr as like if I wanted something more designy. So like with the with this podcast, the, the logo and the intro and outro, we got that on Fiverr, and it was just right. so it was just so cheap compared to like what you'd pay in the UK. <laughs> we got professionals to do it, but then you know if I wanted someone where I was effectively going to you know I wanted someone basically remote working from a different country, so say India, and I wanted them basically doing full time work at like a lower rate than I'd pay in the UK, but still a good rate over there. I wouldn't I wouldn't go on Fiverr, I'd go straight to Upwork. So they are right. I know they're both trying to compete with each other and expand into each other's territories, but I do view them as different businesses. With Fiverr, I think it reminds me of Brian Feraldi's approach because he sort of takes a view that well, you look at it and you say, Well, if this is like I mean, Fiverr, last time I looked at it, it was like a seven billion dollar valuation or something. But Brian Feraldi basically says, Well, you know, where do I think that could be? You know, if you think it can be a hundred billion dollar company one day. 
does it matter whether you get it at 7 billion or 5 billion? Probably not. And I think yeah. that's, that's probably the approach you need to take with those. Exactly. So you've got quite a few of the FANG stocks in your portfolio. I know we've already touched on it earlier and you said these, these were the stocks that you basically went for when you were building up your portfolio. But do you think that these companies can continue to deliver market beating returns going forward? And or are you just comfortable that they're such solid companies that it doesn't necessarily matter if they don't? I think there's a bit of both. I think they're solid companies that it doesn't matter if they don't. But I also think winners win, right? So they're, they're going to carry on innovating. They can, all of them can innovate fairly risk-free. They have so much cash flow. So I, I think in terms of, we, we, can, we can predict where things will be in five, 10 years, or we can certainly think about where things will be in five, 10 years. What you can certainly say is that these companies will be at the forefront of those. Now, obviously, again, there's, there's, there's a tendency for recency bias. I think it was a few, maybe a few months ago on Twitter from the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting, there was that tweet or, or, or that slide they had from all the top companies in 1989 and then what they look like in 2019, and they were pretty much all different. So there is a recency bias say, oh, well, these are the big ones now, so they will be in the next 10 years. So that that obviously comes into my thinking as well. And something like Netflix is something that has slightly concerned me. It's it, high cost of produ- producing content. I, f- I think that some of their content doesn't endure. So you've got like titles like Bridgerton and The Queen's Gambit, which, which obviously were fantastic and had a huge hype. And then they kind of go away and you can't really make any more money off them compared to something like Disney, which we can talk about in a bit. Although I think they, they, they recently, I read, I think it might have been this morning, they're talking about going into the gaming or interactive industry, which is quite interesting. So I think generally speaking, they, they probably aren't going to be setting the world on fire over the next 10 to 15 years. Um, they might match the market and, and even slightly beat it a little bit. But even if they don't, I'm fairly comfortable of having them in my portfolio. I'd, I'd agree with what you said there. I would actually say, that, again, of the FANG stocks, I don't follow them particularly closely. The only one I have I do follow is actually Facebook. I just think if you look at what Google has been able to do over the last 10 or 15 years, where it's continued to be basically grow at like 20% a year. If you look at Facebook, I I think that actually still has the potential to deliver multi-bagger returns, even as a trillion yeah. dollar company. I just think the service, they like the product is just too good. I mean, people, I don't think how many people who hate Facebook that are still on it. It's ridiculous. Oh, what's happening? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't particularly like Facebook, the product, but I've still got an account because I, I need to be on Messenger because everyone's on there. Yeah. So that's how they keep me in. And it's just, it's such, yeah. it's such a powerful network. It's just, I, I think there's, there's a lot more they can do. And it's kind of like Google when you think, you know, think how, like looking back at how cheap it used to cost to like run adverts on Google compared to what it costs per click now. And I think Facebook's yeah. going to get like that. But I think in, I think in 10, 10 or 15 years, we're going to look back at the prices people are paying for Facebook ads now and just be like, I can't believe it was that cheap. <laughs> yeah. So what attracted you to Airbnb as an investment? So this is quite an interesting one. So I, when it first came public, pretty much it's one of those companies that everyone pretty much knows what Airbnb does and, and everyone knows about so I was quite happy to sort of sit on the sidelines and see what happened as it came public I know particularly last year there was lots of volatility around IPO so I was like just going to leave it for a bit but when it came up 
I, I sort of looked at the organization. It's a strong, recognizable brand. It's basically a verb. People say, I'm going to go and Airbnb it. That doesn't necessarily mean they might use Airbnb. More often than not, they do. But essentially, it's a verb. It's the go-to website for, for that sort of booking. They're ri riding on the trend of global travel and connectivity, obviously notwithstanding the pandemic. Um, but I think that over, again, a 10, 15, 20-year period, global travel and connectivity is just going to be continuing to grow. It was growing pre-pandemic and it will carry on growing after. I think as a as a, the service it offers is it's a pretty cool service. You know, you you can get some cool properties, you can get really niche properties, you can get different experiences that you can't in a hotel, you can stay in locations that you can't at a hotel. I think that has a huge value proposition to its competitors, other hotel industries and other sort of um, competitors within the airbnb space its costs are quite low it doesn't really need to spend that much money on marketing which often for these sort of companies is, is the big cost its staff costs are quite low as well and it is getting a bit more optionality in its business you know they're talking about experiences and different alternative things you might want to do when you're abroad i've certainly used it for experiences as well which has been quite cool so i think generally as a as a long-term company i think it's going to carry on growing i think it's going to be carry on ingraining itself into the sort of lexicon of holidays people will look at hotels.com booking.com and probably airbnb.com i'm sure that's gonna i'm i'm absolutely certain that's going to continue it's one of my highest conviction stocks which i'm still building out a position again back to my six month thing when i first started it's still growing that position as i'm adding to it over the next i think i've still got another three months to go i i really like it as a business we actually had a look at it when it IPO'd on the show. And the, the what I really struggled, well, there's a couple of things I struggled with. The first one was that because of COVID, it obviously the, the 2020 figures were just not usable. So because yes. of that, you saw, you, you had to basically go from 2019. I think, I don't think they even went back that far because it was the IPO. So say they only went from, you only had the data from 2017 to 2019. And you, you are basically making that bet that it's, it's going to bounce back and it's going to carry on growing with a vengeance right from where it left off in 2020. And in fairness, I do think it's likely to do that. But then the other, yeah. the other issue I've had is it, it is a great business. It's not like, because it gets lumped with Uber quite a bit. And I think it's completely different really and the airbnb i think yeah. it's a very very viable business model what yeah. i struggle with is because it's come because it's ipo'd at such a large valuation i just struggle to I, I struggle to like picture how big i think it can be like can it be you know i don't know where it is now i, I don't follow it that closely but say it's a hundred billion dollar company do i think it can be a 500 billion dollar company i'm not sure and that's the issue. Whereas mm -hmm. if it had IPO'd earlier on at say 20 or 30 billion, I'd have, I'd have been looking at it. It's probably saying, well, do I think it can be a hundred billion dollar company? Absolutely. But it's, I didn't yeah. really with that one. It's just because it's come to the market that little bit later. Absolutely. And, and there are risks with Airbnb and things that I considered. Again, a criticism leveled at Airbnb is that it's hollowing out cities and towns because investors or people are buying properties in, in areas and then just Airbnb and them over a period of time, you then lose the community, you lose people who live there. So I did factor that into my thinking. I think that sort of thing is something that they can definitely overcome. I think similar to, to what Uber did when they came into London, they kind of came in all guns blazing and then realized they can't just do that. They have to work with municipalities. They have to work with stakeholders. I think Airbnb did a similar thing and they've learned actually when we're gonna go into city, like Venice, we have to work with the municipality, otherwise we will just get bombed out, which is obviously what happened there. I think they learn on a small scale there. I think that's a risk, but I think they are definitely set up to deal with that in the future. So Disney is 
one of your largest positions. It's a favourite of mine and John's. So could you yeah. just talk about why you like Disney? Yeah, so I mean, I could I could just list off all the reasons that you've talked about on all of your podcasts, and and I've been as I've been walking and listening, I've just been shaking my head, saying, "Yep, I agree, I agree." So I mean, I mean, what is there not to love about Disney, right? It's it makes people excited, people happy thinking about Disney. I think also what I really like about Disney is that it doesn't matter if you're 80, 80, 18 or eight, you're probably involved or watching some sort of or experiencing some sort of Disney product, be it Disney World, comic books, news channels, Discovery, ESPN Sport. You think you might not like or involve in Disney, but you are. It's such a diverse business. It makes people happy. I just I'm excited just talking about them. I just love it that much. So I think it's a it's a fantastic company. I'm, I was so happy when I bought it and put it in my portfolio. And as I said, I echo pretty much what you guys have talked about on your podcast. It's always nice to get a little bit of confirmation bias, isn't it? <laughs> so that's the end of the the questions now. So is there any is there anything else you'd like to discuss? And if not, um, where can people go to find out more about you? So yeah, people can follow me on Twitter. I have been tweeting for about six to eight months now. I'll be posting my portfolio on a quarterly basis. I'll be logging my trades sort of on a monthly basis when I make them. I'll probably be tweeting about various different things going on in the world. I certainly need to tweet more. I think I've been definitely what I think people call lurking on Twitter. So I, I, that's definitely one of my things to do is to start being a bit more active in in engaging with people so yeah that's where you can find me okay so thank you very much for coming on the show i guess we'll see everyone next week thank you for listening to the investor way to get in touch please follow us on twitter at tiw tweets this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial advice Neither Sam nor Jonathan are financial advisors. For investment advice, please consult professional advisors.